Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we bring you a talk from Mira Jacob. It was the culminating event of the 2022 Everybody Reads program. Every year, the Multnomah County Library chooses one book they hope the whole county will read. Between January and April, the library and their partner organizations host events based around the themes of the book, and they distribute thousands of free copies, thanks to the Library Foundation, to readers of all ages from across the county. The 2023 Everybody Reads book is a tale for the time being by Ruth Ozeki. For information about how to engage with the program, visit the Multnomah County Library's website. Here at Literary Arts, our role is to bring the author to town for the culminating event of the program. I am thrilled to say Ruth Ozeki will be here in Portland on Thursday, March 16th at the Keller Auditorium for the culminating event of the 2023 Everybody Reads program. For more information about tickets, visit literary-arts.org. But for now, let's return to the 2022 Everybody Reads event featuring Mira Jacob and her graphic memoir, Good Talk. In 2017, Jacob started posting comics to Instagram, featuring conversations with her young son. He had a lot of questions, many of them about Michael Jackson, and she did her best to answer them honestly. That project became the book Good Talk, a memoir in conversations. The book is about her immediate and extended family, and it's about coming of age and living in America as a woman, as a person of color, and as an artist. It asks more questions than it answers, and Celeste Eng, author of Little Fires Everywhere, said, quote, by turns hilarious and heartrending, it's exactly the book America needs at this moment. The talk you are about to hear is remarkable, not only for its depth of insight, but also for its range. Jacob is by turns tender, hilarious, sarcastic, and sincere. Jacob talks about the deeply personal creative journey to creating good talk and also explores the national context in which it was created, the killing of Michael Brown and Ferguson, or the political rise of Donald Trump, for example, and how they challenged her understanding of herself, her family, and a narrative about America she's heard her whole life. Here's Jacob. Hi! So, I, um, you know, when I was thinking about what to talk to you guys about, I had, like, 50 different ideas of what it could be, and then I narrowed it down to three um, so I thought, okay, one, one possibility would be how to make something you don't know how to make. Um, because that was me. Because I am not trained as a graphic artist, I wouldn't have necessarily even called myself an artist. Or if I did, I would have been like, I'm an artist. So you would know that I was joking. Um, and, then I, and then I started making this thing. Um, because I couldn't not make it. And I felt like maybe that would be a good thing to talk about. Um, but then I had this other idea, which is how to make something no one asked you to make. 
Um, because A, because that is what most of art is, really. It's something that no one has asked you for and yet you feel compelled to do it. But also you go up against all sorts of rough walls in your own brain when you're doing it. You can really talk yourself to all sorts of wild places. And so I thought, you know, we could talk about that, about making things and all the, all the detrimental things you can do to yourself and all the ways you can be easier with yourself. Um, and then I was, and I was thinking about the kinds of questions I always get about this book because it's about my family and it's about a very specific kind of rupture in my family, some of which I know some of you are facing. And so then I thought, how to make something some people really don't want you to make <laughs> would be like really good and kind of juicy and we could go there and I could say, you know, this is what it's like to write about things when you're nervous that your family may never speak to you again or you may never speak to yourself again. Um, and this is kind of the emotional hurdles you go through, but I'm a communicator. It's really important to me to kind of get to these things in an elegant way and tell you things in, in as true a fashion as I can with this kind of simplicity. So I have settled on how to make something you don't know how to make, no one asked you to make, and some people really don't want you to make. So I wanted to tell you about how this book started because um, it started with this little piece right here. And what this is, what you are looking at right now is the very first attempt at making something with pictures that I was feeling in my heart. And here's kind of how, I mean the thing that you should know about this particular um, this particular little bit is this happened, it happened from a person who was shaking for days alone in her bathroom, who couldn't figure out how to say the thing that needed to be said, who had kind of lost access to the things that things that I'm so used to kind of wielding to comfort myself, sentences, words. Words make sentences that make comfort. They make connections to people. You will connect with people. You will find your way out of this. And nothing like that was happening when I sat down to do this. So this sweet, funny panel was written by a person who couldn't stop shaking. And to, and, but to get back to the story, it was in fact true. My six-year-old son, was obsessed with Michael Jackson. What do you, what is obsessed? Like into, really, really, really into? Yes, I'm obsessed. I say that, you guys, and, and the thing that you should know is that he had the glove, he had the hat, he had a really strong sense of himself as a, as a person who was maybe, he thought, um, the sixth Jackson. And, um, so much so that when I once, when I took him to a piano recital where I think he was supposed to play like old McDonald, uh, the teachers were setting up the studio and one of them played a bass line he was familiar with. And the next thing I knew, he had jumped up onto the stage to do...
something amazing about seeing that. I'm sure you guys have seen that with kids. They just, they embody it with, with a real seriousness. We always think that playing is somehow not serious, and in fact, it really is. It's the taking on of an idea and the, and the full faith in it and the full faith that you can transform into whatever you want to be, right? And he wanted to be Michael Jackson. And my husband and I, thinking we were just absolute geniuses, went ahead and got him all of the Michael Jackson albums. And I mean, I mean the LPs. I mean like the old-fashioned thing that you put on the record. We did this because we thought if we do that, he's not going to be able to skip around in the songs and drive us crazy and end up with like, I want to love you, P.Y.T. You know, like that thing that would happen where you're like, that's not, you've messed the song up, I can never listen. So we got him these albums. And he's alone in his room with these albums. And now, I mean, I'm brown. Um, my husband is white and Jewish, and our kid lands, as you can maybe see a little bit, somewhere between us on the, on the color spectrum. And he's alone in the room with all of these, and he comes out with some questions. Was Michael Jackson brown or white? Well, he started brown and turned white. He turned white? Yes. Have you ever turned white? No. Will I ever? Nope. Daddy? Daddy's already white. But was he always? <laughs> it's like an amazing parent trick when you um, say like five words and you're like, and months of therapy will ensue. <laughs> so, so he's asking me those questions. Um, and I'm, and I'm realizing I'm not doing that well with all of them, but this other thing was happening that summer, which was that a kid named Michael Brown had been killed and the uprisings in Ferguson were taking place. And they were on our television and they were on the radio and they were the things our friends were talking about in voices, asking each other, what do we do? How does this work? What do we say? And soon enough. The TV said a white police killed a kid named Ferguson because he was brown. His name was Michael Brown. He was killed in a town called Ferguson. By a white police? Policeman. Yes. Ferguson is far away, right? So I will say when he said that, I knew that I could say Ferguson was far away, but I also knew I'd been living in New York for 20 years. By that point, I, I knew that it wasn't as far away as I would want it to be. I knew nothing was actually that far away. Um, and then he, and from there, he kind of went into this line of questioning, and I saw it, you know, you see a kid putting together things, and I saw his little brain, and, um, and then the next day, we're on the subway. And just to tell you a little bit, okay, so we're on the subway. It's the end of the day. Everybody, like, smells bad and doesn't want to talk. Um, so it's that kind of weird, heavy silence. And then here comes my six-year-old with this sweet little bird voice. Are white people afraid of brown people? Okay, by the way, the whole subway car was like, <laughs> 
And and also in that instant, I'm just clocking everyone. There's like the hipster white couple across from us that's like, oh no. Um, there's like the man of indeterminate race who was looking at me like, what are you gonna say about this? And um, and there's the black woman next to me who's like, mm-hmm. I was like, right, and, and I, I don't want to lie to him. I don't want to tell him something that later he will look back on and be like, man, my mom didn't even tell me the truth. Um, and also he is six. So I say, sometimes, how do you know? What? How do you know which ones are afraid of you? Mommy, how do you, you don't always, we got off the subway and we went home and the thing that was starting to kind of rattle loose in me, um, I was keeping it under wraps. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to, I'll talk to Jed about this. We'll figure out a way. We'll figure out a way. There's got to be a way. I thought maybe this talk would happen a little bit later, which by the way, it's not that I thought the talk wouldn't happen. I just thought it would maybe be, I don't know, a couple, maybe seven. <laughs> Um, and that night I was putting him to bed and I had just tucked him in and then I turned to leave and he said, is daddy afraid of us? No. No. And then I went and I sat alone in my bathroom, which is the only way you can have privacy in a New York apartment. And I was shaking and I couldn't stop shaking and I and I kept thinking like okay but but okay don't like what are you why are you so derailed by this this isn't this isn't that bad and then the rest of me is like no it's bad it's bad it's bad you can it's a, you're allowed to know that it's bad and what I did was the next day okay so normally what I do is write an essay, right? Normally what I do with that information is like, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take these questions and I'm gonna write an essay, and the essay is gonna be super convincing. Except I had been writing for the internet for a long time by then, and novels and just articles, and I was used to um, this thing, this incredible thing that would happen, which is whenever you write about something, there's this incredible wall of people that come at you and they're like, you used the wrong adverb, I don't believe anything you said. And so, all the tools that I'm used to using suddenly feel like they are not going to be useful to me because the only people that I can even imagine engaging at that moment are the people who have a vested interest in not believing anything that I'm saying. And oh, you're using your kid, and oh, isn't that great? And, and I couldn't do it. And so I'm sitting there at my desk the next day. By the way, my desk is the dining room table because it's a New York apartment. And, um, and I'm sitting there and then I just drew us. These are the first drawings. I just drew us on printer paper with a Sharpie and a pencil. And then I cut us out. And then I ran to his room and I got the Michael Jackson albums. And I put them down on my dining room table. And then I wrote the conversations. And and I moved the bubbles up and down. And sometimes I had like just written a whole beautiful thing and realized the bubble wasn't big enough. I mean, that happened a lot. But I, but I kind of trial and error, just kept trying, just kept trying. And I, and I would do this thing afterwards where I would stand above them and I would look at them and I would say, what can you let go of? What can you let go of? What gets to the heart of this? And I would let go as much as I could to get to the exact 
meat that I needed to live in that beat. And then I and then I I did probably this very dangerous thing, which is that I took pictures of them while standing on my dining room table. I don't, don't no one should be standing on my dining room table. Um, and then I cropped them, and I sent them to a friend of mine who was working at BuzzFeed. And I said, I feel like this is a story. Is this a story? Do you see this story? And he said, This is a story. I'll run it. If you give it to me, I'll run it. And I said, Wait. And I, there was a reason I wanted to wait. I wanted to wait so I could sit with it. But I also had this feeling, and the reason I went to BuzzFeed is because as I was doing it, I was like, a lot of people are going to get this one, and I need a lot of people to get this one. I need a lot of people to see this because I think they will see themselves because all of us in this country where we are told that it is really black and white and the issue is quite clear and you're either on this side or this side, all of us are compromised. All of us are complicit. All of us don't know how to slot ourselves into what is happening. And a six-year-old is a little bit like having this sweet, benevolent alien who's asking questions about things that we have long taken for granted, right? So I, I said, hold on to it for a minute. Um, and then I, I finished it. And this is how that piece ended. Someone asked me what I was today. Ugh, I hate that. What did you say? I said I was Jewish in the winter and Indian in the summer. <laughs> you are the best thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> That's where that piece ended. And I knew when I wrote it, I thought of all these other conversations that sort of lived in me, jangled around in me. And I thought, oh, I have a book of conversations I could draw. I could draw that book. And you guys, that book was going to be so funny. It was going to be hilarious. It was, it was going to be lighthearted and it would always end a little bit like this where you could feel the hope and there was something like you got close to something but it wasn't too ugly. I really wanted to write that book. But then the world started changing even more. And I realized I had to write what was actually happening instead of cutting it off at some point that I just wanted to cut it off at. This is where that goes in the actual book. So he asked if white people, if, if his dad was afraid of us, and this is the next page. Wait, he asked you that? If I was afraid of him? Yeah, so I told him no, and that sometimes news is hard to understand, and our son? What? Our son asked if I was afraid of him? Yes. What do we do? I don't know. I took it there because it was the beginning of something for us as a family I had met my husband in this moment in America where it felt like there was so much hope. And I think I had maybe also gotten a few kind of crazy ideas about how an interracial relationship worked because there are two pretty different fantasies about how an interracial relationship works in America. One is that um, you get together with someone of another race and you have some sort of beige baby and that baby saves the world. 
And then the other fantasy, the one that people don't say quite as much, but you see it in their eyes, is that if you are with a partner who is of another race, then both of you secretly don't love yourselves. And you've chosen somebody who will never love you. Yeah. And I knew that the truth of being in an interracial relationship is that honestly, it's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. It's a bit of not being able to see yourself. It's a bit of being raised by white supremacy. It's a bit of loving someone beyond all possible bodily indicators. It is all of the things. And I knew I needed to write that book. To do that, I had to learn to do a couple things. So one was draw. Um, so, I mean, here's that first slide again. You can see I, I learned to draw. I learned to draw on a, um, with a stylus on a, on a tablet. That was super weird, you know, um, because tablets don't have personalities. And it took me a while to figure out that I had to be able to do this one specific thing, which is, as you've noticed, I just leave the characters up there. They are always the same. Their faces never change. And when I did that, I knew there was a reason why. And I couldn't have said it to you at the time, but the thing that I was saying before about how um, when I felt all the people that wouldn't believe me when I was writing, when I was trying to write the essay, I didn't feel it when I drew the conversation. Like I didn't feel like I was trying to make the conversation for somebody who didn't want to hear it in the first place. I felt like I was just writing the conversation and they could hear it or not, but I was writing the conversation and I wasn't pandering for their sympathy. And that what I mean by that is I think probably a lot of you in the audience are familiar with this. Something terrible happens, a lot of times it happens with race, and you do this thing where you're like, okay, so I'm gonna tell my friend about it who maybe doesn't understand, but I need to tell them. And then they look at you with a very blank face with this kind of like, um, is that really a thing? And sometimes they say things like, I'm not sure if that's really what happened. I think maybe you took it the wrong way. And then you start upping the ante saying like, no, it was really bad. And sometimes you even embellish it to a place where it's not quite true because you need them to understand that the horror that you're feeling is actually based on a real thing that maybe they can't feel. Maybe they can't register, but it's real. When I was drawing, I wasn't doing that. When I was drawing, I was just getting to say what we were saying to each other. So, um, breaking that down a little bit, making art when you don't really know if you're an artist. Um, a, I, I think probably means that you're an artist, an artist being somebody who makes something the world does not ask for. And one of the things I learned is that you have to make, you have to use the form that makes sense to you. So people asked me, did you study a lot of graphic books before you did this? And what do you know about that? And I was once on a train with a guy who was really convinced that I just hadn't done enough research to even begin to write this book. He was great. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't, I mean, I've always read graphic books, but I also didn't study them for this. I locked on to the form that made sense for me. So what made sense for me is it had to be, everything had to be generated by the dialogue everything. Nobody was going to move. Nobody was going to emote. So what does that mean? It means the, all the dialogue has to give you bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. It has to give you some sort of emotional resonance. And I knew I was on the right track when my original editor said, yeah, I really wish that you would um, rethink that. 
Um, because it's really weird, like you're writing these things and sometimes they're really painful and it's like the face has no expression and I'm wondering if you can make like a cry face. And I was like, a cry face. And he said, you know, like maybe like a tear. And I was like, oh. And then he said, or, 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 I mean, or if you're, if that's too emotional, maybe like a, maybe like a consternation face. And um, I, that's when I told him I had resting consternation face. Um, but he wanted this specific thing for me. And I said, what if I don't? Why? What happens if I don't? And he said, then I just have to, like, it's just very jarring for me because then I just have to, I just have to hold all the feelings myself without any confirmation of them. And I was like, yes! We have done it! Um, and I didn't know. I mean, I wish, I want to, I want to be able to tell you I'm the genius that, like, saw that coming. I didn't. But the minute he said it, I was like, that is the equation that I've been trying to get out of. You have offered me an exit from pandering for someone else's sympathy. I'm keeping these faces locked. So the other thing I realized was the narrative needed to be really small. Um, I could only have a little bit of it and everything had to be able to be construed from both the dialogue and also when moments when people weren't talking. Right, so both of those things were gonna kind of move the energy of the piece. And then I had this um, incredible idea. By the way, I should also just say, like, constraint to me, if you're a creator, constraint to me is amazing. It's the thing that gives you the most freedom. Like, the, if you say there's a blank page, nobody knows what to do with a blank page, people panic at a blank page. If you say, tell me about the haunted house on your street, people are like, oh, yes, right? Constraint offers freedom. So, once I set these rules up, the rest of me was like rising up to meet them and fight with them and see how I could bend them. So the faces didn't change. The other thing I did is sometimes the faces repeat. You're going to look in the book and sometimes a character that you're like, wait, wasn't that his ex-girlfriend? Why is she now this socialite? Because it's actually a different person. And I used the same face. And I did that because one night I was sitting there just awake at two, as I often am, and I thought, oh, someone's going to think that what I am saying is if you are born looking a certain way, you can only be one kind of person. What's the fix for that? Oh, make that one person very many people. Okay, right? Change that rule. Then the other thing is I was like, and I'm never going to say my emotions. Never once. I'm never going to talk about what I'm feeling for nobody, for nothing, for never. And my second editor was like, yeah, no. Uh, you have to talk about your emotions. And I was like, that's terrible, really? And he said, yes. And what I realized then is that sometimes you need a sometimes. So, there are sections in the book that break off into a sometimes that tell you what's actually happening. Sometimes, you don't know how confused you are about something important until you try explaining it to someone else. For years, I'd been telling myself that America was changing for the better and that the pain and confusion I'd felt growing up here would soon be a thing of the past. Hadn't we just elected our first black president? Didn't that mean that those of us who'd always, who, sorry, who'd always been treated like we were suspicious or invisible or just lucky to be allowed in were finally going to feel like we were safe and welcome and loved? Sometimes you need a sometimes, and the sometimes in the book, I only wrote those after I wrote everything else. And I only wrote those when I'd run out of every other option to make people understand what I was feeling. They became the connective tissue of the book. My editor was right. Um, 
he was right. But it felt so good not to have to go there first. It felt so good not to have to tap myself out first to say the things I needed to say. How to make something no one asked you to make. Okay, so here is me, all the me's, all the me's that ever were, and a few more. Um, this is me being in America, not understanding so many things about it. That's a pretty accurate representation. I should have a Y bubble above me right now. I don't understand a lot of things. I don't, um, my parents didn't understand a lot of things about this country. And the way that I learned them was by watching, watching, watching other people and taking notes on what they were doing. What that means though, is that there aren't often stories like mine to learn from, for me. There were not nearly enough. And what that meant was, why would somebody want this story from me in particular? Who gets published and why? Maybe not you. Um, these were the things I was worried about, the brown part, right? The part that is neither black nor white and lives in some amorphous zone that nobody really wants to talk about or look at. The Indian part specifically because the shame that I was going to bring upon my family had been, I'd been warned about it for like my entire life. So that was nerve wracking. The old part, which I always bring up because I had been writing for 25 years before my first book got published, and it was published when I was 40. And I remember them being so excited, them being the uh, marketing people running into the room and saying, and the great part is we can nominate you for five under 35. And I was like, it's up to 40. <laughs> and the disappointment was so real in that moment. <laughs> So there's a part um, where people kind of give you an expiration date, and the truth is I came to the industry long after I had hit it, according to those people. The person who doesn't know how to draw yet part. That was a thing, um, because I sold the book on those first sketches, and then I realized that I had to really actually learn how to draw, and what that was was a wild moment in which I would just, whenever I was anxious about America, which was always, I would just get up and then try to make a nose or a mouth. And somehow that was better than thinking about what was happening with this voting block or that voting block. It was like, well, that's not even a nose. Get back to the drawing board. Rule the thing you can, Jacob. The person who knows she is capable of so much more than anyone else believes part. This is a part I've been fighting for for a while. It's a part that I fight for now for my students. It's a part that a lot of us fight for every day. With my first book, I will never forget, I was lucky enough to go to auction with it, but when I was in one particular room, so what that means, by the way, just to break that down for you, when you go to auction with a book, it means multiple editors bid on the book, so you get to hear how they're going to treat the work and what they're going to do with it, what they're going to edit out, what they're going to cut. And there was one editor who said, this book is an immigrant story and a ghost story and a political story. I mean, it's just everything and you've really got to figure out what this is really about. And I said, but it's about all of those things. And she said, no, I mean, you need to figure out what the most important story is here and go with that. And I said, well, what would be the most important story? And she said, well, obviously it's the immigrant story. 
and I kicked my agent under the table and looked at her, and we had the great luck to be able to walk out of that room and say, no, thank you, and walk away from that particular editor who is fantastic, who has put out multiple wonderful books, but so many of those books, I now wonder how much more complexity was in them for the people of color that wrote them. How much more they could have been in those stories, how much more I would have gotten seeing those complex versions of them that weren't just there for their immigrant story. Okay, how to make something some people don't really want you to make. <laughs> so this is, this was the hardest part of the book, is that I have, in fact, a real family in this book. These are my in-laws. Um, they live in Florida. They do things like have theme parties. They're hilarious. They are um, funny and warm. They're amazing with my husband. They're amazing with my son. And when we first got married, it was just, it was just a great it was a great moment because they're also from New Mexico um, and they sort of knew me when I was growing up and I didn't really, we knew each other enough, like I knew they weren't ex-murderers. And, um, and then when, you know, when we were getting married, they had told me, they said, you know, we told all our friends, oh, he's marrying Mira, this woman, Mira Jacob, and they all said, oh, a nice Jewish girl, Mazel Tov! <laughs> and we said, you have no idea how not Jewish she is. Um, but we love you anyway, dear. They would always say that. We love you. And they wanted me to call them mom and dad, and I did it willingly. Partly because they were warm and funny, like my family. Partly because I had always wanted to have American parents that could tell me a couple things about how things worked here. And partly because it was just easy to love them. It was easy to love them until it wasn't. Um, and that's not to say that I don't love them, but as they... As, the, as those years wore on, as 2015 bled into 2016, they became avid Trump followers. And I, I know that's just sort of a shorthand that we use at this point. Um, and, I, and what I mean to say is they took on an ideology that didn't consider my full humanity, didn't consider the humanity of my parents, my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my siblings. They didn't see us anymore. And when we tried to talk to them about it, when I tried to talk to them about it, it didn't go well. We just can't ignore this stuff, Mom. Listen, dear, we're entitled to vote the way we want to. You don't agree with us, fine, but I don't want to discuss it anymore. It's just, Dad got so upset last time. You guys have to let this go. It's just not worth it. This was this crazy thing that was happening, which is that every time I went to see them, they would thank me for not speaking. Um, and the way they said it was, thank you for loving us and loving this family and not needing to start these fights. And every time they did it, and the wilder part, by the way, was that they would, they would actually say, here's the reason that we're gonna vote for him, and blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, okay, but, and they're like, thank you for not speaking. Thank you for loving us. I called them out on it a couple times, and then I knew, as I was writing the book, that this was going to be part of the book, and I will just tell you, that was a really, really, really rough night. Um, I woke up at two in the morning, and I was already crying. 
And um, that was a great way to, it's always a great way to wake up your partner. And he said, what's going on? And I said, Judd, if I write the truth of our lives, if I write the truth, it's going to hurt all of us. It's going to hurt me to say it. It's going to hurt them to read it. But mostly what I was worried about was Jed. We've been together for 22 years. We grew up together in New Mexico. We thought it was going to be simpler to stay together. Sometimes it is simpler. Sometimes it's not again. We've been writing this for a very long, long time. And I knew the thing I was worried about most was actually not my feelings or his parents' feelings, but him and his heart. Because his heart is so dear to me. And um, when he said, look, Mira, if you want to lie and make up these things about my parents, you know, you could very easily turn them into these evil people. And everyone, you know, people would be thrilled to read it. And I said, oh my Lord, I would never, I would never, I am not worried about what happens if I lie about your parents, because I would never, I am worried about what would happen, what happens, what will happen if I tell the truth. And I got really quiet. And then he said, um, well, you, well, you just have to write the book that you have to write. And I said, what if you regret saying that? And he said, no, no, I mean, I definitely am going to regret saying that. <laughs> um, but he's a filmmaker and he's an artist. And he said, you can't write this book as a half-truth. You have to write the truth. So that meant that he was coming into the book. This is the part where we started realizing that we weren't going to get some sort of magical resolve with his parents and they weren't going to have some sort of epiphany and, um, and it was in fact going to be as painful as we had thought. But they watched the video, they saw what was happening. They said, it's just the media making things up. What does that mean? I don't know. That kind of could have been at any time, in any place, right? So one thing that I thought would be worth talking about is what to do with a very loud silence. When you're used to sucking it up and just making it work no matter what, because what if it didn't? That was probably the scariest part of writing the book of not being somebody's fantasy of an interracial couple, but actually being the one that we are, the really flawed, tender one that we are. And the things that I did at that moment to be able to write this particular book was I decided that I could trust myself, which I know sounds so stupid and Pollyanna-ish, but I just have to tell you, if you are raised as a brown woman in America, everything has told you not to trust yourself. Everything has told you not to trust anything that you see, your interpretation of it, why it would matter. So just even that felt pretty radical. Taking one step at a time. So 
I didn't know how to draw, so I was going to learn how to draw. I didn't know how to use InDesign, so I taught myself that and like five other softwares. I didn't actually even know how to draw with a stylus because I kept putting my arm down and then it would go crazy and make all these weird sea anemones. So that was part of it, just the craft part. But the other part was this thing that I came up with after I wrote the first draft, which was originally, I think there were 83 chapters. I think we end up with 40-something in the book. And all of those, many of those chapters I read and I asked myself this very, very simple question, which is, did you write this one for clarity or vindication? Meaning, did you write this scene so you could understand the dynamic of what is happening with these people that you love and can no longer trust? Or are you doing it so other people take your side and see exactly how awful this is? And if I was writing it for vindication and it was clear as day, like in my gut when I sat with it, I was like, oh, that's, yep, mm-hmm. When I did that, no matter how much I liked the chapter, I just tossed it. I erased it. I deleted it from my hard drive, too, so I could never go back. Because I knew. I knew that the temptation would be great. I knew it, was, it, would, it would be like a, an emotional bloodletting of some sort. It would feel really, really good for like 10 seconds until all of Twitter also decided they hated my in-laws and did some sort of stakeout on their house and terrorized these people that I love. So... That was part of it, and I talked to Jed about that. I think by then he was like, oh, I mean, okay. Um, but he also, I mean, he trusted me. He trusted me probably more than I trusted myself at certain moments, and that was also a lot. And then the last thing I will say about that very loud silence is I think, I think it's so hard sometimes to remember that there is an us. I think the categories get so clear and the borders are so sharply defined that we can't imagine that there's connective tissue in a million different complicated situations that you can in fact have a conversation that there is a movement of people who are looking to explore the world in the same curious way, who want more from it than to be isolated in their boxes of righteousness. And I, every time I got scared, the writer Caitlin Greenidge is one of my very good friends, she's in the, in the book, and every time I got scared she would say, you have to write for us, Mary, you have to write for us. And that us isn't a census box you can check off, that us doesn't look like any one thing, that us is the us, you know us, you know we are here, you have to write to us. Which was the same feeling that I had when I was drawing that original panel on my dining room table, just this idea that there was somebody who would get this. And I do think that is maybe the most important thing to do when you're raised with a kind of silence around you and you don't know where your people are is that idea of there is an us, there is an us for you. And looking for that us, I think, was so important in writing this book. And the other thing that enabled me to do, frankly, was write this really hard passage that I'm going to attempt to read now without crying, but I don't do so well at that, so if it happens, it happens, and we're not going to embarrass me about it later. 
the first, I think it really was 26 times, I wrote the last part of the book, which is a letter to my son. I wrote it wrong. I was so angry. I was so angry. And I tucked all sorts of little bombs of truth in there for him. And this is what is really happening. And you thought that was okay, but it was not. And it was, it was, it was bad. And my us happens to be a writing group um, of people who, writers, who some of them I didn't even know before I reached out to them. I just loved their work. And those people had read the whole book and looked at the letter that I had done 26 times and said, what is this? Why would you send this to your son? Who are you writing for? Are you writing for clarity or for vindication, right? It's another way of saying that to me. And when I finally sat with it, I realized that I didn't need to be right with him. I didn't need for him to know that I was the right one. I needed him to know this. Here is the thing, though, the real true thing I still have trouble admitting. I can't protect you from everything. I can't protect you from becoming a brown man in America. I can't protect you from spending a lifetime caught between the beautiful dream of a diverse nation and the complicated reality of one. I can't even protect you from the simple fact that sometimes the people who love us will choose a world that doesn't. Even now, just writing that down, I want to say something that will make it okay or even make it make sense, but I can't. Will they ever really understand it themselves? Will they ever change? I have no idea. Our burden is how much we might love them anyway. And this is maybe the part I worry about the most. How the weight of that will twist you into someone you don't want to be, or worse, make you ashamed of your own heart. I hope you will remember that you have nothing to be ashamed of. I hope you will remember that your heart is a good one and that your capacity to feel love in all its complexity is a gift. That part came only because I trusted myself, I found an us, and I let myself be soft enough to hope for something better for my son, which was a heart that could feel the fullness of this moment instead of constricting around the ruptures in it. And there was something really wonderful about that feeling. I carry it with me now in this super weird time that we're in. I carry it with me into every, every moment of my strange day, whether I am actually able to see people or I'm locked in my own head. It is this tremendous, tremendous, tremendous hope for us as people and talking, even though I don't think talking is also the best way to communicate because if you have um, ever heard me talk about talking, I have this, I'm just sort of flabbergasted that we have these mouth holes that we blow noises out of. And then in the moment that we're blowing noises out of our mouth holes, the other person is thinking about the noise they're gonna blow out of their mouth hole. 
And so, like, whatever's getting into the ear holes is pretty compromised. I mean, the idea that, like, that's a thing is, like, I just don't know. I think, I think maybe we want to evolve a different way. But the thing I love about us is that we are the animals that will do it again and again and again with this brazen hope that this time we will be understood and, and, and sometimes we really are understood. Sometimes we really do hear each other. Sometimes it really is a good talk. Thank you. We've got some questions preloaded from some students who are here today. Have your in-laws and son read the book? What do they think of it? Mm, yes. Okay, two very different things. Um, <laughs> So I gave it to my in-laws, um, I gave it to them before it was published, I gave it to them in galley, and I said, we can discuss anything you want, and they didn't want to discuss anything, they were perfectly lovely about it, they did not tell me, don't do this, um, they did say, we didn't realize that you felt all of this, and I did say, you should have me talk sometime. <laughs> um, no, but you know, they, they actually, they were lovely about, okay, this is the thing and you're gonna put it out and, um, and this is what it is. I did have a really beautiful and somewhat harrowing phone call with my father-in-law right before the book came out. He called and said that he said, um, I don't think you know me and I need to tell you who I am. And he grew up very poor in East Brooklyn and he said, I've been collecting rent since I was 11. I had to have a job always. This is, there was never any, there was never any peace for me. I think you think I'm someone I'm not. And, and I listened. And it was really interesting, actually, that conversation, because I, he was telling me all of this stuff, and I realized in the middle of it that if I didn't get in there and start asking him questions back, it was just going to be this wall of information. So I, started, I got in there. And I was like, tell me what that was like. Where did you keep the money? What was that like? I just, I was like, let's talk. And slowly he started telling me about his life and there was a lot of it I had heard, but some of it I really hadn't. It was a beautiful conversation. And by the way, I was walking all over Brooklyn delivering packages to have this conversation because I was so nervous that I knew I couldn't stay in my own apartment. And, um, and, I, and I walked 30,000 steps. So like, it's real, that conversation was real. But um, what happened over the course of those hours with us um, talking is eventually he got to a place where he said, and this, dear, is why we are so worried about how angry you have become as a person. And I said, wait, wait, no, 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 wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, like, no, wait, we were, we were just having such an interesting conversation, and now you said a thing that hurt my feelings, can we back up? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, let's back up. Uh, you, and I was like, before you say you're angry, and I'm like, so you feel that I am becoming angry. And I was like, do you know what I'm most worried about now? And he, just at this particular moment. And he said, no, and I said, so your grandson, who by the way is, I should tell you guys, he's like, he's this tall now? I know, it's so weird. Um, your grandson is going to look older than you think he will because he's got our hair genes and the kind of lighter skin and it's going to look a kind of way on him. He's going to look 16 when he's 13 and he absolutely does. And the thing that I am so scared of is what I see happening all around New York, which is stop and frisk and how many times those boys are roughed up and 
I know that you don't want him to be roughed up. And he said, of course not. He's a good boy. And I, was like, and I said, they're all good boys. They're all good boys. And so I need you to know that the thing that I do with my anger is I stand in this place and speak about what kind of boys they are so that they don't get roughed up. So you can tell me that I am angry and I am, but my anger is the thing that protects the thing you love the most. And he said, I didn't realize they were still doing stop and frisk. And I said, yeah. Again, we should try talking. Um, and it was a really interesting conversation. It was, um, it was also really funny because in the course of the conversation, I came home and um, Z was making dinner. He makes dinner. And, um, he was, and so I, I saw him and I didn't want him to know that I was having a very intense conversation with his grandfather. So I said, you keep cooking. I'm going to go to your room to continue my phone call. And that was where in the phone call I said, this is why I'm angry. And I am, I am protecting the thing you love the most. I wish, I wish you would understand that and see it. And, um, and when we were done, and when we were done with that, I said, Are there, is there anything that you want to ask me? And he said, no. And I said, I wish sometimes you were curious about me. I think sometimes you think that if you ask me what I think about things, it will always be some sort of indictment of you, but I'm curious about you, and I wish you were curious about me. And then I said, and we should probably get off the phone, because and I just knew that I knew the conversation wasn't going to end well, and I knew I was getting close to the place where I was going to cry, and I was like, I don't want to cry. And so I got off the phone, and, um, and then like the door bursts open. Z comes in the room. He's like, Mom, that was amazing. And I was like, you were supposed to not be, I came back here so you wouldn't listen. He's like, I know I could barely hear anything, but I just put my ear like right up and I heard a lot of it. And I was like, okay. Um, and I was, I, at first I was pretty mortified that he heard it, but I think later I, I thought, no, it's okay. It's okay for you to hear me fight for you. It's okay. When it comes to writing, how much trial and error do you really go through? And I think maybe <laughs> that's what it says. As opposed to the wild lie I was going to tell you. <laughs> and maybe you could, you talked a lot about the big, I'll just add to that. You talked a lot about the beginning of the book, but then presumably you got some sort of, you know, steam going and how much, how, what was it like finishing the book and, and how much did you really go through? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I made it feel like a quick song and a bunch of roses. No, um, so what, what it was, there was, so, there was so much that I was learning at one time. In terms of writing, um, I was always trying to get to the truth of the conversation, but also I love dialogue. So that work was joy for me. Also, staying away from the news and having to learn something was joy for me. Also, I was working in this super weird space that's a little bit haunted, and that was a joy for me. Um, so there was a lot that was happening at that particular moment that felt good with this book. But I will say, I it took me 10 years to write my novel, my first novel. And, um, and in those years, I wrote, for, I wrote for two years once in the wrong direction. Um, like I wrote, and by that I mean I wrote 200 pages in the wrong direction. Uh, thinking that I had the right story and had to, and, and then the day that I had the epiphany that it was the wrong direction, I again just had to delete it before I thought too much about it. I, there's a lot of trial and error for me 
And there is also, I will say, I think there's this weird sexy thing that happens on Instagram that makes you think that the writing life is like sitting by a beautiful window and thinking your thoughts and they come out beautifully. I don't know a single writer that does that. Like we all look like hell. Um, and it's all janky. Like I write with a lot of incredibly talented writers and their first drafts are incredibly janky and it's always such a relief. It's like you, a genius, this, it's amazing. Uh, this person says, I know that New Mexico holds a place in your heart and your husband's. So does it is my first question. And can you speak to how New Mexico influenced you and shaped you in any way? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, New Mexico holds a huge place in my heart. I think of myself as New Mexican first. New Mexicans! <laughs> I hear my New Mexicans in the audience. Um, I, so if you've read the book, you know that mine was uh, the third Indian family to move into the state of New Mexico, we think, according to the other two Indian families that were there. <laughs> and, um, and growing up in that, place was so interesting because one of the things that happens when you grow up in a desert is um, your experience of the earth is you are on this like this land that is like this but the sky is everywhere and there's a sense of you you understand that you're here for a blink when you live in a desert and there's something about that that I find incredibly comforting um, there's a way that when I see the horizon lines in New Mexico this it just like quiets my heart in such a deep way. And I think there's also, because there wasn't ever critical mass in a way, like really it was very hard to get in a crowded room in New Mexico. I think some part of that just allowed me to sort of grow into myself in a very particular way. I never felt crowded out. I didn't, it's true that I didn't, I mean, I knew all the Indians in town, but I, you know, like I didn't, have that sense of community, but I did have this, this place of, I grew up along the, this is just gonna sound like a lot. Okay, it's gonna sound like a lot, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so I grew up along the banks of the Rio Grande, and there's a little sliver of forest there called the Bosque, and I grew up wandering through the Bosque alone a lot, because there weren't a lot of people that were the same age as me, and my best friend until I was 10 was the 85, uh, to 90 year old woman next door and all of that together. It does sound like a weird fairy tale It kind of is um, all of that together was actually a really beautiful way to grow up Because it was soft and it was weird and it made me pay attention to things and it gave me a different sense of time Has Z read good talk and what was his response? Okay, the answer is yes um, so here's what happened I I told him, he was the one person where when I was done with the book, I sent it, I told you I sent it to everyone in galley form, but also he wasn't um, fully into his reading years, so I sat down with him and I read all the parts that he was in. And our deal was, what I said to him is, look, I wrote what I wrote. If you want me to cut any of this, I will cut it. You don't have to explain why, I will cut it. Just you say, no, not that, it's gone. And I did that for a reason, because he didn't choose to be in this book, um, and because he's a kid. And honestly, if he would have been like, cut all of me out of any of this, I would have just fictionalized another kid. <laughs> no, but he was really, he was, he was basically, um, I was talking about this in the high school today, so every time, like in the, first, in the first draft, I would send it, I would show him something like right after we talked, and he'd be like, yeah, that's right. And then a month later, he'd be like, 
did I say that? And I was like, yes, you said that. And then like three months later, he'd read it again and be like, I'm so funny. <laughs> so that was amazing. Um, he didn't actually cut any of it. But I do know, um, and I think we're probably kind of getting close to time. I imagine at some point he's going to be pretty upset with me. And it is his right to be upset with me. And I just told him, we'll just have that conversation as many times as you want to have it. And I don't know that I was right. I knew that I was doing the thing that I thought would protect you the best. But I can see why it, it might not be comfortable for him in his later years. And I think when I wrote it and I realized that I was putting him in it, I just said, like, yeah, the, the, the document you are signing in your soul right now is that you are ready to answer for this for the rest of your life to that person. That was the 2022 Everybody Reads author, Mira Jacob, speaking at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. The 2023 Everybody Reads book is a tale for the time being by Ruth Ozeki. For information about how to engage with the program, visit the Multnomah County Library's website. I'm thrilled to say Ruth Ozeki will be here in Portland on Thursday, March 16th at the Keller Auditorium for the culminating event of the 2023 Everybody Reads program. For information about tickets, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.